Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Having looked at the basics of earth science last time, we are now ready to consider Noah's flood. As always, you'll learn the major options for interpreting this biblical event. Some Christians understand the flood to have been a local event, largely limited to the region of Mesopotamia. Others hold to the notion that this flood covered the entire planet, rising above even the highest mountains. No matter which position you take, you'll have to answer key biblical and scientific questions raised by that position. Here now is episode 474, Noah's Flood with Will Barlow. Welcome back to Scripture and Science. We're in session 13 now. In the last session, we talked about the science of geology, a little bit about geology and earth science and atmospheric science. And we're going to use some of those things to discuss Noah's flood uh, in this session. Again, depending on your view of Genesis, you may, if you hold to a gap view, you might have two floods. You might have an earlier flood in Genesis 1 and then a later flood here in Genesis 6 and, and to 9, Noah's flood. So that's why I've titled it Noah's flood to be very specific. Uh, some people refer to just the flood, and when they're referring to the flood, usually they do mean Noah's flood. But I just wanted to be very clear. That's what we're talking about. In this session, uh, I want to go through some considerations, some things to think about when we think about Noah's flood, different questions, I guess, that are in the background of this uh, story from the, from the Bible. Then we're going to ask the question, global or local, which I think is the most important question to ask about Noah's flood and where a lot of the dialogue between uh, scripture and science comes into play is in that question, uh, global or local. Then we're gonna look for evidence for Noah's flood briefly. There's a lot of evidence. There've been books written on the subject and tons of websites you can look at. So we won't be looking at the evidence exhaustively, but I'll give you some resources to look at for that. And then finally, we're gonna think about some of the implications of Noah's flood. There's some very interesting things that happen in terms of how the Bible describes life before the flood and then life after the flood, and especially as life moves forward throughout time, uh, there's a couple of things that are really interesting in relationship to Noah's flood there as well. So we're going to dig in, and here are the considerations that we're going to look at, and there's more than this, but we're limiting ourselves to these today. The first question we're going to ask is, rain before the flood, was there rain before the flood or not? There's arguments on both sides. We're going to take a look at that. Uh, the next two questions are interesting because depending on your view of Noah's flood, uh, it affects your understanding of evolution and how much evolution would be required immediately post-flood. There's a lot of things that go into that. We're just going to sort of survey those things. But plate tectonics, your views on plate tectonics will affect this a little bit. And then your view on the scope of the flood will certainly affect this as well. Then the last question is, how big was the ark? How big was the ark? Was it big enough to handle all the animals and plants or whatever it would have needed to handle to make all those things survive? And to get us to the point now, what we're trying to do is we're trying to explain the diversity of life we see all dispersed all over the world. How do we get to that point if we believe in a flood 
5,000 years ago or so. So these are the types of questions that we have in the background. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 2. Many Christians throughout time have taught that before Noah's flood, there was no rain. And a lot of the ammunition for that comes from Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. And it says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And then it goes on and talks about Adam, the formation and, and creation of Adam. Here the key phrase is, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. So some people believe that this is saying in the period before the flood, uh, there was no rain. I read a paper by a scholar named Mark Futado, and he suggests actually that mist should be translated as rain, and he gives several reasons for that. The first one is, in the context, there are two problems. There's no rain, and there's no man to till the ground. If he's mentioning in verse 6, this mist, maybe that's you know, solving the problem of the rain in verse 5, and then when it talks about no man to till the ground, it solves that problem in verses 7 and following. And so Futado suggests maybe mist could be translated as rain. To get around the obstacle of the specific wording here about the mist going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground, he says maybe that's a description of the water cycle, of evaporation and then precipitation. And so, again, Futado says, hey, we should reconsider this. Now, there are reasons why mist could be better. And I'm going to mention this late tectonic shift theory here briefly. So uh, we're not going to have time in this class to go through all the ins and outs. And I will say that recent tectonic theory, the idea that tectonic plates shifted in the last 5,000 years or so instead of 300 million years or so, which is the current uh, scientific paradigm, if you hold to a, a late tectonic shift, that's something that most scientists are going to disagree with because of scientific evidence. And so there are a lot of barriers there to that belief. There is some evidence for it, too, and I don't think it should be completely disregarded. But in the scope of this entire class of all the things that we've discussed, most of the things that we've discussed have been firmly within solid, recognizable science. Uh, this recent tectonic shift, I would put a step or two outside of that, where it's, I'm not going to say it's a conspiracy theory, uh, I do think that there's evidence there and it needs to be addressed by scientific theories. But I'm going to say that it's, it's not on the same level scientifically as some of the other things that we've discussed so far in the class. But if you hold to a recent tectonic shift, then think about how that affects your view of Noah's flood. If you have a recent tectonic shift, that could solve some of the problems with dispersion of animals and so on and dispersion of plants and that sort of a thing. But the other implication, what we're talking about here is if you hold to a late tectonic shift, then you have a supercontinent here uh, before the flood. And if you have a supercontinent, uh, then you would probably need some sort of mist. You would need some sort of mechanism beyond the water cycle, because what we know about the water cycle and how it operates today, the middle of bigger continents, the middle parts, have a hard time getting that mediating influence from water. And so the way to solve that and to make for life to be able to be supported on the whole supercontinent, mist would have had to have been at least a part of that if you hold to a late tectonic view.
Uh, the other implication is the sign of the rainbow. Uh, the sign of the rainbow is only possible with rain. And so some people think that no one had seen a rainbow before. And so when God uh, gives his sign of the rainbow with Noah, that that was the first time anyone had seen a rainbow. And so that's when the water cycle really got kicked off the way that we see it today. I, I think the other side, the flip side of that coin is uh, God doesn't always su- signal covenants with things that are completely brand new. For example, we're not going to imagine Passover as existing the first time that lambs existed, for example. You know, things have not changed that much over time. So uh, the rainbow could have existed, and the water cycle could have been in effect to some degree. Uh, Another thing that people think about is possibly rain kicked off the the modern water cycle, and this answers one of the objections to the flood that people ask, which is where did all that water go? If you have all this water that gets put, you know, some of it could be absorbed by the earth, certainly, and end up in groundwater and wells and things like that. But it's just so, the biblical description, if we hold to a global flood, the biblical description of it is just so radical, it's so massive, the amount of water that would have taken, uh, that some people think that this kicked off the modern water cycle, and that a lot of that ends up in the atmosphere, in our current rain and precipitation and all that. So here are some reasons why mist might be better. My personal take on this is that it could be both. You know, you could have had mist and you could have had rain. You could have had both. The Bible, I don't think, is definitive enough on this issue to be too dogmatic. Uh, The other interesting thing, like I said, we talked about this just briefly a second ago, is what we believe about plate tectonics absolutely impacts our view on evolution and, and the extent of Noah's flood. All these things sort of go hand in hand. So, again, if we hold to a global flood, if it's not just a local event, then it affected all animals worldwide. So how did all the animals get all over the world? For example, Australia has animals that are unique to Australia. How did we get kangaroos only in Australia if with a a recent flood? How does that all play out? How does that work out? We have to be able to explain these types of things. And so, like I said, a small minority has proposed a more recent tectonic shift. Uh, This would allow for animals to get in various places, which we'll talk about in more detail later in this session. But it also would account for some mountain building after Noah's flood. So tectonic shifting is one of the main causes of mountain building. One of the key phrases in the flood account is that it covered the mountains by a certain depth, 15 cubits. And so if you hold to a more recent tectonic shifting, then you could say the mountains at the time of the flood were lower than like Everest and K2 and Kilimanjaro and all these high mountains that we observe today. And then you could basically say all those mountains could have been formed after the flood. This limits the amount of water that you would need. And it also explains how animals could get all over the place. And especially with the wild diversity we see, like I said, Australia being one of the prime examples of the need for us to be able to explain these types of issues. Now, the flip side to this is that you would likely need to have fast evolution even in this view. So you have all these different kinds on the ark, and then they get geographically split up. The plates shift now. Australia breaks off from the supercontinent. And now you have to explain why something that wasn't a kangaroo and didn't evolve into a kangaroo anywhere else on the earth evolved into a kangaroo. I think you have to think about almost a fast evolution in some of these cases, which is really interesting because many people that hold to these types of views are anti-evolution as a general framework. 
And so there's, there's all these questions we have to consider. There's all these things we have to balance. The scope is another issue, like I said. Uh, so if the, if the flood is a local event, then a lot of these scientific questions just go away. If it's just a Mesopotamian flood we're talking about, then you don't need to explain kangaroos in Australia. They were in Australia for years and years and years and years, and you don't have to worry about any of those issues. Also, don't have to worry about this recent tectonic, any of this recent tectonic activity. So global flood proponents have some difficulties, including a potential need, like I said, for fast evolution. And that, that's true whether you have a recent tectonic theory or if you hold to like a land bridges theory or to like a water raft kind of theory or an air migration view or a combination of all those things, you still have some interesting implications with the theory of evolution. Or at least you have to say that God directed animals to go a certain direction. Like only the kangaroos or the you know, marsupials like that are going to go to Australia. So there, there are ways to get around fast, fast evolution. I'm not saying that's the only way to resolve this thing, but I am saying that these are interesting things to think about. All right, transitioning to how big was the ark? Our main text here is in Genesis chapter 6. And uh, for those of you watching the video, you may have already realized I am jumping around. Uh, I am jumping around here in the flood account and I'm talking about details in the flood account that may or may not be as uh, familiar to you recently. So if at any point you want to pause this and read through Genesis 6 through 9, I encourage it. Uh, those of you that are stuck in the room with me taping this live, I'm sorry. I didn't warn you last time. I didn't warn you, but we will be jumping around a lot. Um, so anyway, you're stuck with me now. Here we are in Genesis 6, verses 15 and 16. This is what the Bible says about the size of the ark. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. So this is the description of the ark. And for us, you know, cubits don't really mean much. But depending on how you reckon a cubit, that translates to something that's 450 to 510 feet long. You know, in that ballpark. And John Whitcomb and Henry Morris are, are two men uh, who published a book called The Genesis Flood. We'll be talking a lot about that book here in this session it's pretty much the classical text for Noah's flood in a lot of respects. And they estimated that the ark would have held the equivalent of 522 rail cars. Then they go on to estimate that one such rail car could hold up to 240 sheep. So there's a lot of space on this ark. This ark was a huge, huge boat. So when, when people posit the objection to the flood story that hey, are you sure you would have been able to save all the biodiversity on the planet? Uh, Whitcomb and Morris show that, yes, this arc, an arc this big, a boat this big, could have saved certainly every kind, which, again, you could view as like a genus from a modern biological standpoint. They could have saved animals from every genus and plants and would have had plenty of room left over. Briefly, I'll mention that some, especially, well, it's essentially young earth creationists hold the view that dinosaurs were on the ark. And so I just want to briefly mention that, yes, there would have been space for dinosaurs on the ark if we assume what young earth creationists often assume, which is that they would have been transported as, as eggs. Now, old earth creationists will obviously reject that. They believe the dinosaurs were gone millions of years ago. Okay, so depending on your view, will change in some respect the scope of animals that even end up on the ark. And I think the old earth view 
is a much easier way to get uh, enough space on the arc. I think the egg theory is interesting, but I'm not sure it answers uh, all the questions about, about that kind of a proposition. So, all right, with those considerations in mind, we will transition now to what I think, again, is the most important question we have to ask ourselves about Noah's flood. So the question is, was the water impact global or local? I think most people, even that hold to a local localized flood, will say, based on the biblical evidence, that all the people did not make it. Okay, They'll say all the people did not make it. They'll say that everyone lived in Mesopotamia at that time and that they could not flee in time to escape a localized flood. We'll answer, I think, some criticisms of that view here in a moment. But I'm just saying that local means localized water, it doesn't mean that necessarily all the people didn't perish in the flood. Global is that the water impacted the whole surface of the earth. We're going to start with arguments for the local flood. In Psalm 104, verse 9, it says, You set a boundary that they, the waters, may not pass, so that they, the waters, might not again cover the earth. And proponents of a local flood theory believe that all of Psalm 104 is referring to Genesis 1. And so if God set a boundary for the water in Genesis 1, they say, then how could have Noah's flood been a global event? If God set boundaries uh, that it might not again cover the earth, then how did Noah's flood have been global? That's an interesting question. Another argument for a local flood is that the word land, and we've talked about this in session two briefly about how the ancient Hebrews would have understood the word land And that word often would have meant the land of Mesopotamia or the promised land or a more localized region. That is absolutely true. And so another argument for the local flood is, well, land, when it says it's going to cover, in our translations, it says cover all the earth, that we should translate that as cover all the land, and that that's referring to Mesopotamia. And even more specifically, it's going to be uh, the inhabitants of the land that are the most affected because they perished in the flood. So that's another argument for a local flood. Another one, this one's really interesting because in my mind it hinges more on uh, whether we see this word upward in the King James Version versus a lot of modern translations which don't translate it this way. So in Genesis 7.20, according to the King James, it says, 15 cubits upward did the waters prevail and the mountains, and again, people that propose this theory will say hills, the hills were covered. And then in the ESV you see it doesn't use the term upward in the same sense. It says the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And so it sort of inverts the ordering and says, they sort of make an interpretational decision that this 15 cubits is, we're talking about the highest mountain and then 15 cubits above the highest mountain. So that the ark, which was 15, which would have had to drop or you know, would have sunk to where it's the submerged section was 15 cubits, that it could pass comfortably over any part of the surface of the earth and not get impaled from below by one of the mountain peaks or something like that. So the question is, do we think that the King James did it right? Do we think that really uh, the flood was only 15 cubits high, period, end, or do we think that it was 15 cubits above the highest mountains? Interesting question. Now, to get around the language again that seems to state that all humans died in Noah's flood, other obviously than the exception Noah and his family, some local flood proponents say that all humans lived in Mesopotamia when this flood took place. 
And again, the strength of this view from my perspective is there is really strong evidence of a Mesopotamian flood about 5,000 years ago, whereas most scientists will argue pretty vehemently against the argument for a global flood because they would say we would have to have more geological evidence. Um, I think that there is some geological evidence for a global flood, which we'll get to later. So this is the case for a local flood. I'm not saying it's an impossible view. I think from the biblical perspective, it's more difficult. To me, the local flood view seems to be more motivated by the science than it is motivated by the scripture. That's my perspective, and feel free to make your own opinion on it. Now, what are the arguments for a global flood? Well, I'm just going to read some verses here, and we're going to see what we think, if we think that this is describing a global flood or a local flood. So here in Genesis 6, verse 17, it says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. This is just one example of what they call universal language in this flood account. There's a lot of it. And local flood proponents will say that this is hyperbolic, Okay, that this is a hyperbole. This is an exaggeration for effect. There are plenty of hyperbolic statements made in what we would consider historical passages throughout the Old Testament, like wiping out all of uh, certain tribes, for example, in the Promised Land. Then you read two, three, four hundred years later, oh, that tribe still exists. They're still bothering the Israelites. Um, you know, and so did they wipe them all out? No, they didn't wipe them all out because they're bothering them here two, three, four hundred years later. So yes, is there hyperbolic language in the Bible? Absolutely. We have to decide whether we think this is meant to be that way or not. Skipping ahead to Genesis chapter 7, I'm just going to read verses 19 and 21. It says, And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Then comes the 15 cubits deep verse, which we read earlier. <coughs> then 21, it says, And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. All right, again, <laughs> is this hyperbole? Is this an exaggeration? Or is this meant to be a description of historical fact? That's our decision. That's where we go global versus local. Now, here are some logical arguments for a global flood. Has anyone heard of a localized flood where the rain lasted for 40 days and 40 nights and kept a massive boat floating for around a year? I just want, to, want you to think about it. That's what the Bible describes. That's, that's exactly what the Bible describes. 40 days and 40 nights of rain kept a boat, a huge boat, floating for around a year. It's a pretty big objection in my mind. Uh, another big objection is, okay, the rain starts. The people of Mesopotamia have never seen rain before, theoretically, under certain views of the flood. Why don't they just get up and move? If the water's only going up 15 cubits, that's you know, approximately you know, 25 feet or something like that. 25 feet is how deep the water goes. You think someone could flee and get away from that if it's a localized flood that only goes 25 feet up. Okay, so it seems to be a pretty big obstacle. Now, here's another one. Genesis 9, when we get to the covenant piece of this, in verse 11, it says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Again, all flesh being cut off, flood to destroy the earth, you can translate that word earth as land, but I'm asking you, is that how we should understand it or should we understand this to be the surface of everything? And then we have how the other 
People throughout the Bible interpret this. And this is what Jesus says in Luke 17, verse 27. I'm just going to read this from the slide instead of turning there. It says, They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So Jesus' words certainly make it sound like it was universal and human impact. And I think if it's universal and human impact, we can say Jesus believed in a global flood. It just seems like that's the most likely reading of this Luke 17 text. It's not impossible to read it the other way. Um, if you hold to a local flood theory, I'm not saying you're unbiblical or wrong or whatever. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's a harder road biblically. It's an easier road scientifically. That's the trade-off, I believe, in my mind, between these two options. Now we're going to transition to the evidence for Noah's flood. From my perspective, the strongest piece of evidence for Noah's flood is actually not found in the geological record. It's found in the historical record. Would it surprise you to know that the Hebrews, the ancient Hebrews, aren't the only civilization with a flood story? That essentially every civilization or many civilizations from essentially every part of the world has a flood story. I'm going to read a quote. We come in Morris. I don't agree with them on everything. They're young earth creationists, okay? I don't, I'm not a young earth creationist. But I think the Genesis flood, it's like the classic text on the subject. And if you want to know more about the flood, I recommend the book. I think they do a lot of really good thinking on this subject. And they bring up a lot of really interesting considerations on the subject. And so I do recommend the Genesis flood. I'm going to read a couple pages here from the Genesis flood about this issue of the historical record. It says, scores and even hundreds of such traditions, talking about ancient flood traditions, have been found in every part of the world in both eastern and western hemispheres, and common to most of them is the recollection of a great flood which once covered the earth and destroyed all but a tiny remnant of the human race. Many of them, even those who have been found among the American Indians, so think opposite side of the world as our Hebrew uh, compatriots from the Old Testament, tell of the building of a great ark which saved human and animal seed from total destruction by the flood and which finally landed on a mountain. That's from page 48 of the Genesis flood. You know, you have these traditions all over the world. You know, I studied history quasi-professionally for one summer. I took one history class in college. And one of the things that our professor said was, you go back to the primary text. The primary text guides you. Well, as a historian, thinking about this from a historian's perspective, if every ancient text, or at least many of them, uh, from all over the world, all have a flood story and all mention some of the same things, you would think, hey, this event, number one, absolutely historically happened, number one. Number two, it seems to have happened in a way where every civilization was affected all over the world. How do you get that if it's not global? It's really interesting. The geological evidence for Noah's flood, again, scientists will consider this. Geologists will consider these types of arguments more controversial. That's why we're handling these only briefly and not in more detail. Uh, Whitcomb and Morris do an excellent job, again, of mounting a lot of evidence. There's a number of websites that do a great job of, of mounting a lot of evidence. And they come from different perspectives, some of them younger, some of them older. And so depending on their viewpoints, you'll get different perspectives on the geological evidence, okay? So I'm just going to mention a couple uh, that Whitcomb and Morris mentioned that I think are particularly strong. Uh, one of them is uh, the evidence of seamounts. Now, seamounts are old islands, and they've now been submerged by water. They've actually found islands that are submerged very deep. 
Uh, they found beaches that have been submerged very deep underwater. And it's hard for us to imagine in modern geological history having that much water being added to the surface of the earth. And so this seems to give us geological evidence that, hey, maybe the water levels were lower at one point, and maybe they've increased, you know, sometime in the finite past. And that would be good evidence for Noah's flood in a more global sense. The other idea that they mention is submarine canyons. These are canyons, and if you think about like the Grand Canyon or big canyons that we observe on land, a lot of them uh, require being on the surface of the earth to form because you need wind and you need, you know, like a river or water, a smaller amount of water over time to wear down that rock and build that canyon over time. Well, they found submarine canyons that ge from a geological perspective would be an open question for geologists as to how these formed without being on the surface of the earth and being exposed to uh, wind and erosion and, and all the other uh, elements. And so the existence of submarine canyons also seems to point towards a bigger flood, like Noah's flood. We're going to conclude now with implications of Noah's flood. And uh, one of the biggest things is how do we explain these transition in life, in lifetime? So before Noah's flood, you have people living to 900 years, 800 years, 700 years. And in modern years, that sounds preposterous. And there are biblical arguments that those are exaggerated. But if we hold those exaggerated, I, if we set that aside and say, okay, we're going to hold to these as being the real ages of these people. The Bible's right as a historical record, we're just going to do that. Then there are some really interesting implications of how the, the flood, how Noah's flood could have impacted atmospheric sciences and that sort of thing in a way that would have affected possibly the life of people immediately after the flood. And if you notice, the drop-off occurs immediately after the flood, then there's sort of a tailing down, and then you end up with like 100, 120 years from that point forward as being sort of the maximum lifespan, which, which accords with our modern understanding of, of lifespan. So what some people have said is that an increased amount of water vapor in the atmosphere and decreased oxygen could explain if you're in a less oxygen-rich environment, then all of a sudden your body could decay faster. You know, the, the natural processes could be inhibited in some degree of the natural repairing processes. And so that could change the length of life in people from before the flood to after. Another person postulated atmospheric pressure. Changing atmospheric pressure with adding you know, water vapor into the atmosphere could also impact longevity as well. The next question we have to ask ourselves is, how did humans, animals, and plants travel to their current locations? Uh, there's essentially three different views on this. And uh, well, there's floating on air is also, I would include water rafts. There's, there have been instances where animals have, I guess, accidentally gotten thrown out to sea and gotten on uh, logs and something and have ended up floating to an island and ended up with enough of a population to procreate and that sort of thing. So floating on air, I'll add also water rafts to that sort of version. But a lot of people think that there were land bridges after the flood. That's how humans got to all different continents. That's how animals got all the different continents. And you can think possibly, again, God drove them in certain directions, certain animals in certain directions. And maybe that's how you end up with kangaroos on Australia and nowhere else. So there are ways to get around recent, you know, fast evolution type answers there. A lot of things could end up have floating on air or floating on water. And we've seen this in modern times. Then, of course, the third option for you is recent tectonic separation. If you have recent tectonic separation, then you get humans all over the world. You get animals and plants all over the world as well. So those are sort of the three views people have at resolving that problem.
talking about this idea of uh, water rafts or air travel, I want to give this quote from the Genesis flood. It says, in the year 1883, the island of Krakatoa in the Sunda Strait between Java and Sumatra was almost destroyed by a volcanic explosion that shook that entire part of the world. For 25 years, practically nothing lived in the remnant of that volcanic island. But, and then they're quoting from another source here, then the colonists began to arrive. A few mammals in 1908, a number of birds, lizards, and snakes, various mollusks, insects, and earthworms. 90% of Krakatoa's new inhabitants were forms that could have arrived by air. By air. Not even talking about water rafts, just air. So, again, you have the recolonization of an island in recent human history, and they've shown that that repopulation of that island could have happened through air, which is really interesting. So, in conclusion, there are lots of things to consider when dealing with Noah's flood. So my encouragement in light of the survey that I've given you, which was not in-depth at all, but just a survey of some of the evidence, is take time to read the account. Read Genesis 6 through 9 and read the references later in Scripture. Look at where the, the Noah's flood gets mentioned later in Scripture and start with the Scripture and decide from the Scripture whether your perspective is global or local. I think if you start there, I think that's the better way to go. Then... From there, whether you go global or local, there are many ways to interpret the scientific evidence. You have articles from young earthers and old earthers. You have arguments from local flood people and global flood people. So there's a lot of ways to interpret the same scientific evidence. Uh, but I do want to point out, from my perspective, the historical evidence is clear. There was an ancient massive flood. We can believe the text of the Bible when it says there was an ancient massive flood. And so again, I think the largest barrier when we think about atheists or agnostics or people who would question the veracity of, of Noah's flood, this, this is not just a story. This happened. This happened and it was catastrophic enough to impact civilizations all over the planet. It's in all of their historical records. And so I just want to point out, no matter where you end up, global, local, how you want to interpret the scientific evidence, okay? The bottom line is, the way that the Bible describes it, well, however you interpret that, that event happened. We can believe in the integrity of the Bible, and we can believe that it's a worthwhile endeavor to, to start here with the Scripture and then see how we can integrate Scripture and science together. Well, that brings this episode to a close. What did you think? Come on over to restitutio.org and leave your feedback for episode 474. Noah's Flood. would love to hear your thoughts. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. If you just look up Restitutio, you should be able to find it. That's Restitution with no N. And leave your comments there as well. However, as with social media, it doesn't really lend itself to finding those comments later. So if you want your comments to be a little more permanent, a little more accessible, uh, the website really is the best choice. Speaking of comments, someone named Nick wrote in on the Facebook group recently and said that he was in a small group Bible study fellowship, and it wasn't a biblical Unitarian group. It was just a regular Christian group. And they asked him a question about the sinlessness of Christ. And they asked, well, if he wasn't God, how could he possibly be sinless? And what Nick told them is that, well, he, although as a human like us, he was empowered by God, not to sin. And they asked him in return, well, 
uh, I don't see how being empowered means that you're sinless. There are really a couple of different options I wanted to weigh in on here as a comment at the end of this episode. One is that Jesus really did have the same inclinations as all of us, all of us who are fallen in our mortal and imperfect state of being. And God gave him kind of a boost. That's that's one possible theory that the but I think if we wanted to go with that theory, we it would apply better to John the Baptist, don't you think? Because he was influenced by the Spirit by uh, from the time of his birth, whereas Jesus did not receive the Spirit until he was baptized by John, what, at 30 years old. So I, I don't know if I want to make too much out of that, but it, it, it's a theory that more readily lends itself to John the Baptist than to Jesus. I guess you could go with a double baptism idea that Jesus both already had the Spirit involved in his life from his birth, and that the public... Water baptism combo received the spirit in the form of a dove was more just for the people there or maybe a second blessing or something like that. I guess there are a few options, but it is awkward. The other option to go with is, well, there are two other options to go with. One is full-on Pelagianism, and Pelagius believed that anyone could live without sin regardless if that person had become a Christian or not. We all have within us the moral will, completely untainted, completely neutral, towards sin or towards righteousness, and we could just simply choose to do the right thing every time there's a decision to be made. Every time there's a fork in the road, we could always go right instead of left. And so doing there probably would be others also, apart from Jesus, who likewise live without sin which I think is also theologically awkward. It also could diminish the uniqueness of Christ, couldn't it? I guess you could go with a special pleading version of Pelagianism, whereby anyone could live without sin, but Jesus is the only one that did. I think you'd have to really explain what you mean there in that case, but that is another possibility. And then there's the view that I personally take, and uh, also I came across the same view among the Armenian Unitarians, who flourished in the 1800s in Armenia, but also in Turkey before that in the 1700s. And what they taught was that Jesus was born in the same way that Adam. He was created just like Adam was created, not just like in the sense that he was formed from the dust. Obviously, Jesus was born. He was created in a womb in that case, but the same condition, let's say. So Adam and Eve were made perfectly morally neutral. They were completely capable of living without sin. In fact, if anything, I would suspect the deck was stacked for righteousness, that they had an inclination to do what God said at all times, and that only when the serpent deceived them, only when they were acted on by an external force, would they even consider the possibility of defying what God had said was right. But if Jesus is in that category, then Jesus is, just like the Pelagian view, morally neutral, fully able to choose right and wrong. And then rather than saying all of humanity is like that, you have Adam, Eve, and Jesus, three individuals who do not have, however you define the fallen nature. And so any one of those three did have a chance, a good chance, of living without sin. Well, I think that rounds out the different options. There might be 
one or two more than what I mentioned here. And if you would like yours to appear on the Facebook discussion, you can find it on the Restitutio group under Nick's post, which uh, starts with the words, last night I discussed being a biblical Unitarian with my small group. Or you can leave a comment on the Restitutio website if you prefer. A bunch of people have already commented in with a variety of views. And uh, why not add your voice to the mix, especially if you have a different idea. Just scrolling through the comments here, I noticed that uh, Johnny wrote in saying, well, look, the angels are without sin, so you don't, obviously you don't have to be God, or at least the good angels, I'd say. At least you don't have to be God in order to be sinless. I think there is a category difference between angels and humans just because of the fall, but uh, Johnny still makes a, a valid point there. And also Bill wrote in saying that it's really important not to in any way diminish the fact that Jesus is a human being. That is really key to how the Bible portrays Jesus, how salvation works, and this whole idea that a human could be sinless as being preposterous, really we can't entertain that, that sort of philosophical speculation. I would add to this also the idea that we are destined to become sinless. That's kind of our goal, isn't it? that uh, throughout the process of sanctification in our walk with the Lord, that over time we would sin less, we would move ever closer to God and increase in holiness, and that in on the last day, in the resurrection, that when the kingdom of God comes, we would be able to live without sin, that we would be fully mature, fully capable of making the right choice all the time. So if, if we were looking back on it from the future perspective, we would say, oh, that was weird how humans sinned for a little while there. Humans are obviously made to be in fellowship with God. And, you know, say uh, 10,000 years into the kingdom of God, you'd look back on it and say, well, that was a weird blip in our history that there was this weird thing called a fall and that people were confused for a time. But, you know, we're really made for God and to be righteous like God is righteous, and to find our fulfillment there. So those are some thoughts on that. If you'd like to leave a comment, please do so on either Facebook or the website. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at restitutio.org. We'll see you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.